when I when I get down to crunch time, I mean, when when you know I'm ready, I'm hitting my highest levels of intensity, and this athlete's ready to compete and whatever. Typically, I'm doing a few things. I'm hitting max velocity with them, um, so they're doing max velocity work. I'm doing a high level depth jumping with them, and then I'm doing Olympic lifting where they're lifting at like hundred percent, you know, going for really heavy singles and that type of stuff. So I'm hitting those types of sessions and those types of units every 10 days or so, of course, depending upon the athlete. Now, if I'm going to do those things, um, they're super intense. And if I'm going to be intense, your exercises have to be simple, you know? So if I have really simple things, I can show high levels of power output. That's why I like to use Olympic lifts and sprinting and simple plyometrics for my high intensity training. You know, you can be fancy or you can be intense. You can't be both. So I have to be simple. And if I have to be simple in the, in those aspects of the program, well, then I want to be diverse elsewhere because that's one of the things I'm trying to do. I'm trying to mitigate injury risk uh, that's associated with the intensity in that part of the program by diversity in other parts of the program. That was Boo Schexnader, and you're listening to the Just Fly Performance Podcast. Today's episode is brought to you by our longtime sponsor, Simply Faster. There are a lot of sports technology companies out there, but Simply Faster is the only website you can go to that features an online store that covers the bandwidth of training technology, from force plates to timing systems to muscle simulators and more. Some products of Simply Faster that I use and love include things like the free lap timing system in KBox or coaches' favorites such as GymAware. Recently, Simply Faster has added two units that, as a coach, you should definitely take a look at. The first is the Muscle Lab Contact Grid, which is an extremely affordable and portable step-by-step, literally, system to collect data on jumps, bounds, sprints, agility, hurdle hops, and really as much as your creative mind can imagine. In what used to take a whole runway worth of collecting of data collecting strips, the Contact Grid does it all with only two small strips that together cover up to 40 meters of sprinting. Ground contact time, step rates, rhythms, and beyond are at your fingertips with this device. Another new unit, the VO2 Master, is an ultra-portable gas exchange analyzer. Don't guess on energy system development when you can get direct insight into VO2 capabilities in relation to specific sports skills, rather than uh, being hooked up to tubes on a treadmill or worse yet, a cycle ergometer to get a VO2 Max. Think of the VO2 Master as your own gas exchange lab without the tubes and wires. Deepen your analysis in the specific conditioning preparation of your athletes with the VO2 Master today. These products and incredible customer service make Simply Faster your go-to for your sports technology needs. I'm happy to have partnered with them in sponsoring this podcast. Their support has been tremendous, so check them out today at simplyfaster.com. That's simply with an I, faster.com. What's happening, everybody? Thanks for being here today. Training, planning, and organization is probably one of the most common uh, questions or topics that I get pitched at me when I ask, uh, either throw out lines for a Q&A or just ask what uh, topics people want to hear more of on this show. And it's for a good reason. How many times have uh, you or your athletes run into a performance ceiling when you, you just knew there was so much more in the tank or, or things like uh, hitting that big peak or taper when you have to be at your best, as well as just finding ways to continually make gains over time and not plateauing early due to over-intensification or, or poor recovery. 
anything to do with that uh well first off i just love that topic i've been obsessed with training your organization probably ever since i've been 15. um but it is a topic that's really near and dear to the heart of any coach or any athlete who's ever uh, been into training and hit plateaus. We all want to know how to put our training together better. Uh, so for our guest today is an absolute master of training and periodization, uh, and that's Boo Schnecksdater. Boo is, a, is the current strength coach and former jumps coach at Louisiana State University. He's regarded as a leading authority on speed power training, training design, and many other things having to do with getting athletes to their highest potential. Boo has 37 years of experience in the coaching and consulting fields. He has worked with numerous NCAA champions and 10 Olympians in his time at LSU. Uh, as I said, I get a ton of requests for periodization and planning, and this show this show is exactly what you guys who are asking for that are going to want. This was an awesome talk. It is definitely one of the best talks I've had on a just straightforward playing and organization for speed and power athletes, and not just track athletes, but team sport athletes as well. Uh, and we get into the small scale, so uh, working in a week cycle or 10-day cycles, all the way to how does Boo uh, work across the year? So working, if you're starting in September and you're finishing in June, where do you start? And what principles do you carry with you in getting athletes to be at the highest level, their highest speed and power level when they need to be? And so some of the topics we're going to get into... Boo's going to take us into his thought on his uh, training schemes, so loading to deloading days, what types of days he has. He's going to take us into his home base power workouts versus his more intense workouts and even his uh, trump card workouts when he's getting into that real competitive season. He's going to get into variety, uh, proprioceptive variability, which is awesome. He's going to get into some ideas on recovery workouts, deloading, uh, plyometric training for team sport versus track and field, and a whole lot more. This really was an awesome talk, and this is this is a show you study. I mean, I, I do the editing for these, so I go through, I make show notes, and this is a show that I studied and is one that I'm sure I'll be going back to the notes here. Uh, Boo is just such a wealth of information, and so uh, for all you out here, get ready for a fantastic show. Let's get to it, episode 205 with Boo Schnecksnader. Boo, it's great to have you back on the show. Thanks for being here again. I'm really excited. I, I, I always enjoy... Uh... I always enjoy being a part of it, and of course, I enjoy reading your work, and it's, it's an honor. Yeah, I, I like I just mentioned uh, before we got rolling. I, I've been thinking a lot about I've been thinking a lot about just like year-round training ideas, and so I'm really excited to ask you. I have a ton of questions for you. I'm really excited to get going on all these. But the first one is, what is your take on um, change of themes in year-round training? I know you know we often talk about. Uh, you know, obviously things like training power year round and the importance of that, but how much, how much change of how we structure and theme our actual training load, um, is needed through, and I guess I'll, I'll say it's in the context of track and field first. So I, there's obviously different contexts, but let's say for the context of track and field and, and sprints or jumps, um, what's your take on, on training themes and year round? I think you have to continually change, uh, yet supply variety. I think that, um, you know, physical Mental boredom or mental staleness is something that all good athletes have to trudge through at certain times of the year. But physical staleness is a problem. You know, uh, I, I think that variety in training is extremely important because not only does it uh, alleviate a lot of the repetitive movements that kind of light the fuse on injuries and such, but I think variety in training also has a lot to do with proprioceptive sharpness. And I think that in many sports, a lot of uh, 
hitting slumps and shooting slumps and these types of things can properly be attributed to just groundhog day types of training philosophies. So that being said, I don't know that there have to be wildly different variations in your volumes and intensities as you move throughout the year. But I do think there has to be change. Exercise choices are a big part of it. Uh, mild fluctuations in intensities and volumes are a part of it as well. And frankly, a lot of people, uh, when they get my training in their hands and shift through the papers, they look at it and they want to know why I changed this or why I changed that or whatever. And most of, a lot of times the answer is simply I changed for the sake of change just because I believe very strongly in the importance of variance and variety in training as you move forward. So, I mean, if you're going to, you know, if you're a high school coach and you have your kids for a couple of months, well, then you don't need much variety. But if you're like most of us and you're going to be training kids actively for, you know, eight, nine, 10 months, and maybe they have eight month competitive seasons, then you've got to have lots of tricks and lots of twists and turns in your training just to prevent that proprioceptive staleness from taking place. I've never heard the term proprioceptive uh, staleness before. I mean, I, I think in my mind's eye, I think I know what you mean, but could you expand on that just a little bit more? Well, I just think that, you know, proprioceptors are responsible for sensing body positions. They're responsible for um, our kinesthetic awareness and such. And just like any other body system, they adapt to change. So if there are no changes, there are no adaptations. Now, I'll be honest with you, I doubt that you'll find that word anywhere in the research, but I just noticed that at certain times of the year when you've been doing stuff and uh, you're kind of doing the Groundhog Day stuff, there's just a certain level of staleness that tends to set in. And then suddenly throwing complexes in or doing some type of variety as far as uh, changing up training stimuli, exercise choices or whatever, just seems to sharpen this up. Um, researchers in 20, 30 years might find that it's not proprioceptors, it's something else, but I can pretty much assure you that my observations are correct. And, and uh, that's my, you know, in my rudimentary lab, that's my, uh, um, th that's what I accredit it to, I guess you'd say. Yeah, so, so the proprioceptory being just, just the, the sensations an athlete's getting through what they're doing. So could that be, um, I, I, well, first, I guess, just, just confirming that, but secondly, I was just thinking about like changing in surfaces even, is that, would that play a role like doing the same drill? You could do the same thing, but on grass versus a track versus. A Absolutely. You know, working between sprints and resisted sprints or assisted sprints, you know, working between vertical and horizontal plyometrics, you know, working between lighter loads and heavier loads, you know, uh, all of these different things, just about anything can fall into that, uh, into that, uh, into that category. Cool. And so with the power training too, because I know, you know, power training is important throughout the whole year, but how? What are some examples of how that? Uh, if you have a whole year ahead of you, and I've, uh, well, it's been on the top of my mind. Really, it's um, this is something that I was just talking about in a recent podcast that ha actually hasn't come out quite yet, but and also an article that uh, Jeff Moyer had written about just like where do you go in terms of intensity and always having somewhere to kind of build something to build on from an intensity standpoint. Um, could you talk a little bit about your approach to? Uh, training power throughout the year if you got you know, nine months to work with somebody or eight months to work with somebody uh, or, or more uh, how do you how do you look at where like where am I going from here and then what are some kind of insights into how you change up power from a from a perspective of where you're eventually headed in the year yeah well ultimately my goal is to get the intensities 
in my power training as high as I possibly can. You know, I always say that the um, level of intensity you reach is going to be the level of performance you can expect. So ultimately, you're, how successful you are at achieving these high intensities is what's going to dictate whether you're successful or not. Now, that being said, you have to have a roadmap, as you just said, and I kind of look at it in a couple of ways. Uh, I always begin the year power training wise with simple things. And I try to keep it simple for as long as I can. The reason why is at just going back to what we were just saying about potential proprioceptive staleness, you know, there's going to come a time when um, um, they've seen everything you have and you have to supply variety. You have to involve complexes. You have to use creative uh, set rep loading schemes in order to keep things moving along. Well, at the beginning of the year, everything's new to them anyway, so there really isn't a need for that type of thing. So what I try to do is I try to save most of the things that I use for variety and variance, like trump cards uh, that I play later in the year at critical spots. But the way is this, but as far as long-term power is concerned, I always begin with, uh, I'm, I'm kind of a nervous system person, and I believe very strongly that remedial power training, whether it's acceleration work or whether it's light Olympic lifts or whatever, I always think that those things really drive rate coding improvements. And I think without a nervous system that's really geared toward activating muscle tissue or is effective at activating muscle tissue, then you're, you're, you're kind of you're not going to be effective in training anything if that's the case. So that being said, I always begin the year with basic power development, really fast, really explosive types of things. And I invest three, six weeks or so in that type of, in that type of philosophy, real simple stuff, just to try to drive rate coding uh, improvements before I start to get into the serious, uh, more advanced forms of uh, of uh, power training. And once I move into the more advanced forms of power training, then I use kind of a home-based philosophy. Uh, a big part of what I uh, believe is that endocrine support is always a critical factor. And I really think that these lower ends of power development provide a lot of endocrine support and they provide endocrine support for the reaching that you do, for the more intense bouts that you do. So I employ kind of a, a home-based philosophy, you know, things like my acceleration development, my light Olympic lifts, rudimentary plyometrics, those types of things are always in my program from day one to day last. Uh, I'll change them up, of course, but they're always in that program. And when I get into high-level power training, what I do is I try to move from my home base to, an, to a point of higher intensity and then back again. So, it, so my program is not a linear increase in power demands or a linear increase in intensity over time. It's constant fluctuations between low-intensity work and higher-intensity work. So general prep is, is, you know, in high inten is, is intense from the standpoint of of speed of movement and such, but it's not nearly as intense as the things are, but there is power development in the general prep. Then as I move on, I move into a mix of this home-based stuff and more uh, intense type of work. And then I move into uh, a phase where I use again, the home-based stuff and stuff that's even of a higher intensity. And then the program just becomes more and more and more and more polarized as I progress. Yeah. So, so kind of to recap, you, you have like a home base, which is, is high velocity, but maybe it's a little bit lower, like you said, it's like, um, like sub-maximal lower weight Olympic lifts and the acceleration development. And then you'll move mm -hmm. from that type of work into, uh, that high, like ratchet up the intensity and then you'll move back down into the home base and then go back into a higher intensity. So that's always fluctuating in some way throughout the year. Correct. And when I say move back, I'm talking about short-term returns. 
you know, so it's not unusual at all, let's say, um, to use kind of traditional uh, periodization talk, you know, um, just about every Olympic lifting unit that I'll write, for example, in general prep, is going to be light bars around 60-65%. Well, when I move into early specific prep, well, those stay there, but then every other session or every third session is going to be around 75-80%. Then when I move on further, then those light Olympic lifts are still there, but every third or fourth session then is going to be at 90 to 100%. So I just continually vacillate back and forth, like in the Olympic lifting program between that 65%-ish kind of stuff and that higher intensity type of stuff. And I just keep bouncing back and forth. You know, when I was a young coach, they told you not to do that. They mm -hmm. said that once you get high intensity stuff, you stay with it and that's all you do. And um, I didn't work for me. You know, I, I found that I couldn't do it um, as often as I wanted to. And uh, anyway, to make a long story short, that's when I realized that a lot of the really old training books had drug biases in them and that the endocrine support back in those days was maybe coming from needles. And I found that by bouncing back and forth between this lower intensity home-based stuff and this higher intensity stuff, I found that I could do the same intense workouts that anybody else was doing. I just couldn't do them back to back to back. Yeah. And I think about that's interesting how you mentioned the, and I'm, I don't think I'm that familiar with the coaching education through all, you know, the decades and things like that. And, and my, I don't know, I, I think I've taken a weird alternative path in my own <clears throat> learning, but I, it is interesting, like the idea that you're at in a high intensity and maybe I've read this before, but it's like, okay, now you're in a high intensity phase of the year. You're just going to stick with that the whole year. And yeah, like when's your nervous system going to, I mean, that's like the epitome of flattening out your nervous system and, and, and stiffening it, right? Like you have to retreat back into those those um lower level or base modes but i love i love your base your base train because your base is still it's still high intensity like high velocity stuff that's i'm sure it's engaging to power athletes but it's just it's a little easier on the the system like it helps exactly. the system recover yeah and and, and i kind of design like set rep schemes so i get a little bit of lactate so i also get a little bit of restoration out of it and the home base stuff i really think kind of produces its own uh restoration but I, I'm a big believer in contrast, you know, going back to our original discussion about variance and training and, you know, how do you contrast high intensity work? How do you make it stand out when you do that with the lower intensity stuff that you do? Yeah, I, I, I'm think, I've been thinking about that ever since um, even on the I think the, the most compressed level I've ever seen that done was a guy who wrote a vertical jump program named Alex Vasquez, who had a big Jay Schrader influence and in his the program went something like four weeks of um of higher frequency like maybe training four times a week like some sort of power then you'd go to two i think it was a two then two three weeks of a two times a week then back to four weeks of a four or five time a week and then back to two times a week and it's just like i mean that was fast like to me that's like really a really <laughs> fast transitioning um maybe that's like the, the extreme end but how often how would you say your your contrast kind of go like how often do do you go home base versus then getting in high intensity? Does it just depend on the athlete and how advanced they are? I'm sure a lot depends, right? But like just from a general rule of thumb, how often do you kind of roll with each type of system? Well, you know, yeah, with good with with good coaches, you know, the answer is always it depends. But typically I reach at least once a week, you know, so that's kind of a, you know, so if I'm like Olympic lifting like three times <laughs> a week, for example, uh, I keep using Olympic lifting because it's kind of an easy thing to visualize mm -hmm. and an easy thing to explain to um, 
to, to voice uh, intensities and percentages. But like if, for example, if I'm in late specific prep or early pre-comp or something like that, and I'm Olympic lifting three times a week, then I'll typically have one session at 65%-ish, one session 65%-ish, and the other one's going to be pushing 100%. You know, so typically it's like once a week where I kind of give in the, these bouts of high in, higher intensity, higher risk type of work. And that's not to say that the 65% stuff is easy because you're loading with speed, but it is easier in some ways, of course. So that's, that's, is that where you'd go too easy? I think you mentioned this already, so I apologize if I forgot, but so that too easy one difficult, is that in the in, intense block or is that in the home base block? That's in the home base block. Oh, okay. Yeah. Okay. The whole, yeah. All, well, it's the whole program really is that I just continually review home base and then bounce back to higher levels of intensity throughout the whole year, with the exception of the very first few weeks of training, where all you're doing is that home base kind of stuff. Okay. So when you're doing, uh, I guess the picture I had in my mind was like was something like where it's you know four weeks of home base and then ratchet up the intensity for a couple of weeks and then go back back to a home base. Is it not like that? Is is it more? Um, how many sessions? I, I, I guess maybe I'm just getting a little confused. Could you explain how? Oh, you're, no, you're totally correct, but oh, okay. I don't do it for long, long term. I do it short term. So I'm bouncing back and forth between, you know, less intense home based types of training and more intense forms of training within the context of a week, not for extended periods of time. Yeah. Okay. So it's within, oh, okay. So it's just, it's more just the weekly yeah. setup. It's not like, um, it's not like this four week block of training. It's going to be significantly different than like we do four weeks easy and then in this next three weeks it's going to be a lot of intense days it's not like that it's just within the weekly it's more within the weekly cycle or the mic that that is that is correct and again i am saying once every seven days i have some athletes that can do it a little more often particularly typically the younger ones and the more developmental ones and then i have some that have to do it less often you know some of the athletes that i coach that are fairly old and have really high training ages and really high talent levels and are well developed uh they beat their bodies up more so it's not unusual for me to hit things like really heavy olympic lifts or death jumps or speed maximal velocity work more like every 10 days or so with them as opposed to once a week so that's the kind of it depends part that's why i do with with older people i do a lot of rollover training like a, a lot of my training is not like written monday through friday or monday through saturday uh, a lot of the training i just write consecutive training days and we do those days and after we do a few of those days and complete a mini cycle then we'll take a day off and then we'll do another mini cycle. And sometimes we need an additional day of recovery in there. So I might write six days, but sometimes it'll take me seven, eight, maybe nine days to complete those six days. So again, I, I try not to be bound to the, to the calendar as much. It's tough with the school kids because obviously, you know, they're dealing with academics and you have a competition every week and, you know, and so forth. Uh, so the logistics make it tough. But when I'm dealing with postgraduate types of athletes, that's typically how I handle things, you know. So, for example, I might write a three-day rollover. Day one is a is a home base kind of day. It's a neural, it's a power kind of day that is designed to uh, stimulate. Then day two is a really high-end power, speed power training day. And then day three is a restoration day. So we'll do those three days back to back. 
And then after we do those three days, they'll take a day off. And then after the day off, then I evaluate them. Are they ready to train or are they not ready to train? If they're not ready to train, well, then I'll continue to do restoration stuff with them for a little while longer before we go into our next set of one, two, three. On the other hand, if they are ready to train, then we'll move into our next block of three days quicker. So, and so I, it, I just never know exactly how long it's going to take, but I've just learned that if you're not willing to be like that, sometimes you just never going to get the intensities where you really need to get them. You know, anytime that you want an increase in intensity, you have to be willing to give something up from the standpoint of training density is concerned. So you were saying, um, so the, uh, more like an elite athlete or an advanced athlete versus a novice, were you saying that, that novice athletes could do, could do the higher intensity stuff potentially more often? Cause they don't like they they don't wreck themselves as much each time versus a more that's advanced, exactly uh, yeah, a more advanced yeah, athlete. Exactly space, you know, they're out. young, they're developmental, their horsepower levels are not high yet. So because of that, when they train, they don't do the internal damage to their bodies that high end athletes do so i can train speed power at a pretty high level with a novice four times a week no problem but you do that to an olympian and you'll totally wreck them you know and and a lot of times we have this incorrect perception that um oh this athlete is talented they're older they're better they should be able to do more but it's kind of the opposite i think the russians have an old saying that the intensity doesn't come from what you put on the paper the intensity comes from the athletes so you know, what's high intensity for a developmental person is just not high intensity on the relative scale of things. That's interesting. Yeah, I, that uh, that takes me back to, I remember, um, I think that back like the old, these old school forums on, on vertical jump training and power training is our last, I remember uh, really um, thinking it, it was some stuff that Kelly Baggett was saying back in the day. It made me think about that as well. Uh, but it's, it's cool to hear the, how that fits in the frame of your training cycles and systems and it makes a ton of sense and uh yeah really really good stuff to think about uh, you mentioned uh trump cards before and i'm curious what what are some of your like favorite i'm um, for maybe a more advanced athlete let's just or maybe like a university level or you know competitor but what are your some of your favorite trump cards that you're like looking to play in the year in your your power training systems well obviously the single biggest one is the the single rep uh, max kind of work in the Olympic program. That's one that I like to use as a heavy, high-level stimulant. Uh, most of my other trump cards are complexes, you know, and and my complexes are probably no different than any of the other complexes that different people you know use. You know, I like the complex acceleration work. You know, complexing it between resisted stuff and uh, non-resisted stuff, and possibly even assisted stuff. Again, just for the sake of training complexity. I like the complex uh, multi-jump stuff combined with uh, weight training. I like to complex uh, ballistic work. One of my favorite workouts that I like to do with high level uh, jump kids is I'll take like six different bars with six different weights and put them on the platforms. And they have to move, uh, they have to do squat jumps with all six bars. <laughs> nice. And it's, and it's interesting to see them how they'll do that work with one bar, then they'll move to a bar with a different load and different weight and to see how it kind of throws them off a little bit, you know, the the the, the timing, eccentric to concentric uh, conversion isn't quite the same. So you notice how it kind of throws them off just a bit. Then they move to the next one. And again, the fact that I'm always juggling it up, the fact that I'm always forcing them to make adaptations uh, rather than just giving them something that they can just wax in their comfort zone is very important to me. I, I was very lucky when I, uh, 
I never finished my PhD, but when I was doing my PhD work, I studied under Dr. Uh, uh, Richard McGill, who is one of our country's uh, leading uh, motor learning uh, gurus. And um, I had him for class and he was brilliant. And he just made so much sense to me because things that I had noticed that for, for years, he just made it me understand them perfectly. And one of the things that he, he, he taught me was that mastery is not what makes improvement. The struggle to attain mastery is what makes improvement. So if we give our athletes things that we can, they can groove, things that they can just, you know, do without any problem at any time, without any type of uh, challenge in the motor environment, they're not going to progress and they're going to become kind of stale. I'll never forget the example that he gave was he talked about baseball players, you know, like if a baseball player can't hit a curveball and you put them in the batting cage and they hit curveball after curveball after curveball, well, they don't get any better in the game. But if you put them in a situation where every third or fourth pitch is a curveball and they never know when a curveball is coming, well, then suddenly they get better at hitting a curveball. And he, he drilled it into my head that variance in the practice environment does not improve practice, but variance in the practice in, environment improves transfer to the test, to the competition. And that just made perfect sense to me and it stayed with me forever. And, and that's kind of how I build a lot of my training at those times of the years is I'm just trying to find a way to keep athletes out of a comfort zone, out of a groove, so to speak. Yeah, I feel like that's such a, a great example, too, with the and I'd never heard that before, like the six bars and jump squats. Like I'm kind of like I'm like smiling to myself as I'm thinking about you. You were talking about like that kind of the coordination deficit when an athlete would go from one bar to another and kind of they're trying to figure out the rhythm of it. Right. But what an epitome of a challenge from a neuromuscular perspective, that's kind of like that curveball, right? Like, and you're finding these ways in practice to, I guess you could say proverbially from a jumps practice to proverbially throw an athlete, a curveball, like a motor learning curveball, and trying to handle. And I'm mad. So, I mean, I just think there's so much creativity in what you do there. It's, it's really, and, and I don't know, for some reason in reading, like, um, you know, if you read like an article that you write or something like that, or even our last podcast, I, I feel like sometimes I miss just how much creativity you have in creating these things and to, to, to um, facilitate that, what you were saying there with the, the motor learning challenge. Oh, that's exactly right. You know, and, and um, he, like I said, Dr. McGee would be proud of me because I've employed, <laughs> I've employed his teachings to a large extent in what I've done and I continually give him credit whenever I can. Yeah, I think that, and that's just such, to me, that is the fun thing about coaching is finding those ways to to challenge an athletes uh, from a, a motor perspective um mm -hmm. i so the next question i had I, I guess you know we've kind of covered this already uh, and so maybe it doesn't need to be talked about that much but building a base and you'd already mentioned really like how you create you know both work capacity and recovery through the the lower intensity uh, power training the acceleration complexes and those types of things um you had mentioned a little bit about two weeks or three weeks where you don't do anything high intensity uh, what, well, to you, maybe I'll phrase it this way. What does work capacity mean to you? Like an athlete's ability to recover or do work or what is, what does that mean to you in context of your training program? I, I, I think of work capacity as far as, um, supportive volumes, 
you know, I, I always look at it this way, you know, when I'm done with this athlete and we're at our ultimate competition or in our season, whatever, what does this athlete have to be able to do? And I look at what they have to do. I look at the intensities they have to do it at. And then I figure, well, you know, if I'm going to start training them at a somewhat lower intensity and build them up to that intensity, well, then I have to have a higher volume there in the early stages. So what exactly is that volume? You know, so the whole decision making process of establishing a starting volume to me is a big deal. I think you only get one shot to do it right, you know? So for example, <coughs> excuse me. So for example, if you, um, if I'm looking at a elite level jump kid and I know that I have to get them to the point where I can do really high level depth jumping sessions with 30 total contacts, well, then if I'm going to start them with lower intensity forms of plyometrics, well, I better do more than 30 so that I have a room to decrease volumes as I progress my intensities. So therefore, that's why most of my initial jump circuits and things that I do normally hover around 100 to 120 total contacts so that as the year progresses, I can pare those down. I can decrease the volumes in order to allow my intensities to increase. So that being said, that's what I think of it. I think of it in terms of what volumes do you actually need? And of course, we all know a lot of people do volumes just for the sake of volumes. So that I think has something to do with work capacity. As far as the idea of building a base, I'm hundred percent about building a base, but what is the base is the question, you know, and, and I do think that if you're an explosive sport or a speed sport, then explosive stuff and speed stuff is going to be part of your base, you know, so max velocity stuff is not part of my base, but acceleration development work is, you know, uh, heavy Olympic lifting is not part of my base, but light Olympic lifts are, you know, uh, dev jumping is not part of my base, but rudimentary forms of plyometrics and the skill-based forms of plyometrics are. So I just think of the base, so to speak, as a volume that'll support what you need to do down the road and a rudimentary form of everything we eventually want to do. So I always think of, you know, I get the question all the time, well, when do you start doing this? When do you start doing that? And the answer is always on day one. If something is going to be a part of your training program at the very end, it needs to be part of your training program in some remedial form at the very beginning. At you know, at no point in time does anything just magically pop up into the program. Seeds have been planted from the very beginning. So that's my whole idea is looking at the end product, what I need to be doing most specifically in order to prepare for competition or to deal with the competition season and then roll it back to see what the sequencing is for preparation. And that'll give you your answer. Yeah, I like that. So it's it's really in a way it's you're looking at the trump cards you're going to play or those core those core workouts that are going to really be de uh, defining that that high level competition and then just building back and how are we going to get to those over time? Exactly. Exactly. So, you know, just look where you want to be in that you know, and sometimes we kind of just start training and then we kind of decide where to go after we start training rather than thinking about where we want to be from the very beginning, you know. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's, that's something a lot of people miss. And I think that, yeah, the how of getting there, there's, there's a lot of ways to do it, but it's, it's really cool. It's just really cool to hear your, those workouts, those trump cards that you play. And so it just, it, I think it gets a lot of wheels turning on, well, where do we want to go? And I, and I think that what's interesting too, is I love how this is probably not so related, but I, just going back, I, I really love how variability and, and looking at motor learning and not just intensity is a big part of that. Like how do these things combine? What's the motor learning total effect? Not just 
not just intensity, but obviously that, that all plays a role. I just, I really, it, it really just, that's just the element that's thrown in there that I think really changes the game. And I think it's not the way that a lot of people necessarily think about it. It's usually just intensity and just that. So anyways, not to derail it, but I just, I'm, I'm kind of hung up on that. I just really enjoyed that, that element of it all. Yeah. No, we're having a good conversation, but that's a key thing about the variety as well that we really haven't mentioned. You know, when I, when I get down to crunch time, I mean, when, when, you know, I'm ready, I'm hitting my highest levels of intensity and this athlete's ready to compete and whatever. Typically I'm doing a few things. I'm hitting max velocity with them. Um, so they're doing max velocity work. I'm doing a high level depth jumping with them. And then I'm doing Olympic lifting where they're lifting at like hundred percent, you know, going for really heavy singles and that type of stuff. So I'm hitting those types of sessions and those types of units every 10 days or so, of course, depending upon the athlete. Now, if I'm going to do those things, um, they're super intense. And if I'm going to be intense, your exercises have to be simple, you know? So if I have really simple things, I can show high levels of power output. That's why I like to use Olympic lifts and sprinting and simple plyometrics for my high intensity training. You know, you can be fancy or you can be intense. You can't be both. So I have to be simple. And if I have to be simple in the, in those aspects of the program, well, then I want to be diverse elsewhere because that's one of the things I'm trying to do. I'm trying to mitigate injury risk uh, that's associated with the intensity in that part of the program by diversity in other parts of the program. Anytime that I get really intense in one particular aspect of the program, like heavy squats or heavy Olympics or max velocity or whatever, then I try in other days, home-based days, restoration days, I try to be as diverse as I possibly can, again, to try to alleviate the potential for repetitive movement syndromes and such. You're listening to the Just Fly Performance Podcast, brought to you by Simply Faster. Yeah, that's, that's a great way of putting it is and I'm trying to remember there was some there was another thought that I was trying to relay as you meant, mentioned with like the simple and the uh, the diverse but it escapes me but that I, I really it does make a lot of sense and um, so yeah with like that so if you know training is really simple on one day then the the diverse day could be like a like an off day like a Tuesday with all like the the general strength circuits and the general strength that's where the more getting fancy or creative could really come out then to help um or i guess that you could say it's like really opening up all the degrees of freedom and if you close down the degrees of freedom with a heavy squat on one day you really got to open it up the next day by being you could be more fancy and diverse on that day is that essentially what you're saying on that recovery day that's that's exactly what i'm saying and i get kind of slammed on the internet every once in a while because a lot of my you know higher intensity exercises are not very complicated but anytime you make an exercise complicated you decrease the ability of the athlete to exist to exert power you you decrease the ability of the athlete to uh to to maximize uh muscle tissue recruitment and those are the things that really drive the needle on your endocrine responses you know so i'm sorry i'm just gonna stick with the simple stuff when it comes to really hard training and I will be as fancy and diverse as I can when it comes to the easier forms of training. Yeah, sure thing. I, it makes me think too, of just even the simplicity of if you're training a team sport athlete, you know, they granted their, their practices can be pretty intense, but just doing like a, a heavier, a heavier lifting day and a remedial simple, but intense plyo day or whatnot. And then if they were just playing their sport the other day, there's a lot of variety in that granted if it's an intense day, you know, it's going to be a lot, but I, I think about just playing like 
to me, the ultimate recovery days in my youth, I think about just like, just like shooting around and just kind of goofing around in the basketball court and trying a lot of things out. And it's not too intense, but I feel like it was almost like an under appreciated form of recovery for me back when I was 16 because <laughs> you're just doing those movements. It's nothing intense, but it's, it really like opens and it's psychologically relaxing and all that. Um, gra- granted, probably a, lot, a little bit different, but I, I, I've learned to appreciate more the role of variability in, in those um, recovery days, the older I've gotten and looking through rear view mirrors and things like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, so in terms of uh, diversity and variability too, I did want to, and speaking of team sport athletes, I was going to ask, so if you're doing jump training or multi-jump training and you're working with a track athlete versus let's say a basketball player or a football player who's already getting, they're already getting like different types of jumps in their sport. Um, how might this, uh, would this change the way that you approach training them for a jump perspective at all? Or, or, or like, or looking at the, the diversity or variability they get in sport pre-existing. Um, I guess what I'm trying to ask is, do you approach jump training or plyometric training any differently for a team sport athlete versus a track athlete? Um, in very, I'm, I'm sure there's certainly differences, but how do you approach that? Well, you have to train every, yeah, I do do it differently. And you have to do that because every sport has a different training culture you know, and every sport has a different competitive culture. So for example, if I'm dealing with a track and field athlete, you know, in general prep early, I'm going to do some simple horizontal stuff, some simple vertical stuff that's going to improve skill acquisition. And I'll do some in-place jump circuits, which will establish my initial starting volumes. Eventually I'm going to progress to things that are more intense, like bounding and depth jumps and so forth. And it's a very simple uh, linear type of periodization, you know, where I'm hitting really high intensities just before the beginning of the competitive season. But it's funny you should mention basketball because, um, um, you know, basketball cultures change a lot. You know, basketball players now play 13 months out of the year. They never, ever <laughs> really stop playing. So that being said, uh, um, does it make sense to do all of these different types of plyometric progressions with them? Probably not. You know, uh, I have a friend who works in the NBA and he's a person that I communicate with fairly regularly. And when he was younger, he called me one day, he says, uh, coach says, I I got a problem. I just can't get a base with my athletes. He said, what do you mean? Well, plyometrics, I just can't get a base because they're always playing. I said, well, if they're always playing, well, there's your base. And what he evolved to, which is what I kind of, suggesting and what he does now uh, with his program is he takes his basketball players and he will do really high intensity plyometrics with them about once every 17 days Hmm. period and that's all he does so what he's doing is he's he's hitting high intensity levels once every 17 days or so kind of a hit it and quit it type of philosophy understanding that we've got plenty of these lower end type of plyometric things going on but what i want to do is i want to have uh, an intensity shot that's going to help to maintain strength and i want an intensity shot that's going to continue to inoculate uh, muscle tissue and connective tissues against injury and that's what he does and if you look at his the nba schedule it's crazy but if you look at it 17 days and look at a 17 day window typically there's one day out of those 17 where he can fit in a dev jumping session again like 30 contacts or so and that's how he does it and it's worked phenomenally well for him so again that you're totally right you have to do these things differently and the sports culture has a lot to do with it now you mentioned football and probably I know what you were thinking. Uh, football 
players don't jump much, but change of direction is very plyometric in nature as well. Whenever I see change of direction and jumping, to me, those things are more alike than they are different because of the eccentrics. So I kind of treat any sport that has a lot of change of direction involved in it in the same way. Yeah, I, lo- I love what you mentioned there with football and the change. Of, well, and even that basketball anecdote is really cool too with that. Cause I mean, a lot of people, it wouldn't just come like a light bulb to say, Oh yeah, once every 17 days, of course, like it takes some like critical thinking to get there. So that's a, that's a really cool. And, and cause I've thought about that as well too, with people who are playing all the time. And, and so that's such a cool anecdote, but the change of direction thing, I has really been on my mind, especially the last couple of years, I would say, but I've I've mentioned this probably on the podcast and I've written about it. But I the highest I jumped ever in high school, I got you know at six foot or six one. I got my fingers about two three inches above the square on the top of the backboard, so about eleven seven. And it was after about three weeks where I just remember our coach was running us like doing tons of suicide sprints on the basketball court all the time and always egging me on to beat everybody and. And it was actually right after one of those sessions that I hit that jump. Like we were just finishing doing those sprints and I just remember <laughs> getting up and I was just like, man, and I wasn't, you know, I wasn't doing depth jumps. I wasn't doing any plyometrics, you know, just lifting weights here. I mean, I had actually even been lifting for a few weeks and I, and so it's, it's cool to hear you say that how plyometric that is. Cause it really, it's just a different type of coordination too, but it, it's probably like a, a good compliment too. Like if you're playing basketball and getting all the vertical, the straight vertical stuff, then that maybe that was the, the perfect compliment at that time. I don't know. I, just, I think about that a lot. Could well be every one of us at some time in our athletic careers or our coaching careers has found some type of magic and we just never can really find it again. You know, um, the, it's frustrating sometimes, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. I know. I, I probably, it is one of those things too. I, I don't think I could have recreated that situation. You know, like if I, you know, I was in college, I'm like, I need to do, you know, all these change of direction sprints all of a sudden. I don't think I could have got the same result. It was just something, there was something magical about that time period. And yeah, but we all know that when you're dealing with younger athletes, it's that way, you know, and, you know, I, I, you know, I I go to a lot of high school sports and watch high school sports and I see high school sport, high school athletes do things all the time that doesn't even bother them. That if a college kid did it, they would be shut down for like three weeks, you know, injury wise. Yeah, it's it's important to to think of with those those differences. I that's actually I had this question further down the list, but I'll I'll ask it now because I think it fits pretty well. But especially with looking at like a a novice versus advanced and that whole spectrum. But how has your work evolved in in loading to deloading ratios? You know, like I think three to one is always the common. I mean, does that is that kind of like that across the board? Does it change younger, older, the more advanced, uh, getting deeper in a season? How how have you um, how do you work uh, those ratios with across the board with some of the different athletes and, and training times? Well, that's a loaded question because there's different types of work, you know. You know, if, you, if you're looking at the highest intensity days that I have, I typically begin with, you know, three or four a week. Uh, and then I progress to the point where there's like one every 10 days, you know, as the intensity goes up. So, um, so if you, you, you know, when I'm in like the general prep period and I'm just doing my acceleration development and my light Olympic lifting and my rudimentary plyometrics, I'll do those three, four times a week. It's no big deal. But when it gets to the point in time where I'm doing those things like the dev jumping or the max velocity, that's like a once every 10 day thing. So what I do is I look at, key variable to progress being density. 
now, of course, that doesn't mean we're only training once every 10 days. You know, we return to home base with the easier forms of things. You have your restoration piece put in there as well. So it's a little bit of a loaded question because I'm looking at three different things. I'm looking at my basic speed power stuff, the home base stuff. I'm looking at the restoration piece and I'm looking at the challenging intensity piece. So the challenging intensity piece, I guess, is the one you're most interested in. Uh, I just look at constant progressions in uh, decreases, I should say, in density as I move on. I I have just learned over time that you, you, if you're expecting an intensity increase to occur uh, and you want to be successful with that, you have to be willing to give up something density-wise. You know, a lot of times we think of rest and recovery as being important for the point of injury prevention, but and that's true, but what rest and recovery really do is they enable you to reach. They enable you to go for it. They enable you to take risks in your training, so to speak. You know, I, I do a good bit of, um, there was a period in my life I was doing a good bit of ACL rehab stuff with a lot of people. And what we were doing is we were directing uh, speed power training at the knee um, in the ACL rehab program um, every third day meaning the athlete would train on Monday, then they train on Thursday, then they train on Sunday, you know, and it would go fantastic. And the, every single kid I ever rehabbed always asked me the same question, coach, this is going great. Let's train more often. And I'm like, kid, you just don't get it because what was happening is I could achieve levels of intensity that I could not have because I took the extra two days in between. And more importantly, if I made a mistake and went a little too hard, wasn't that big a deal because I had those extra rest days built in. It just kind of taught me to understand the idea that deloading always enables loading. And some coaches are just afraid of deloading. You know, if you look at my training and you look at my work weeks, they're scary. But if you look at my deload week, it's a different kind of scary because a lot of coaches are like, you, no, you 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 got to be doing more than this. I'm like, no, I'm not. This is it. No, the higher the highs, the lower the lows, and vice versa. So for you, because uh, I know you had talked a lot, like doing rollovers, and and it's almost as if in many ways, like the deloads are kind of just built into the way you're training your weeks. Uh, I That's mean, correct. So so do you have I mean, how do how often do you have a specific week or small cycle that is devoted just to unloading? How often is that? If, if, or maybe what I'm asking is if, you know, just woven into your program is natural deloading, how often do you actually take a week where it's like, we're not really doing much? Um, I never completely eliminate intensity from the program completely. So I always are going to have at least a little touch of intensity in there somewhere. That's why, you know, I work on a three and one, three hard weeks, one week easy. And that's why my easy week is almost always a test week, you know, if, and, so the whole week, all we really do is test. You know, we don't do any sprinting, but we'll have a time trial. Uh, we don't do any plyometric work, but we might have a jump test. You know, we don't really lift per se, but we might max out on an exercise. So the whole week is just structured around testing, which works perfectly because it's very low volume and it's very high intensity. So I don't want to create the idea that I ever totally get away from intensity. It's always there to some extent. But what I do is I look really hard at the ratio of speed power types of days to restoration types of days. And when training gets tough, typically the ratio of those days changes. So instead of having every other day being a restoration day, now every, every um, third day might be actually a work day. 
or, or an intense type of day. So as the work gets harder and harder and harder and harder, the actual number of days devoted to speed power training decreases proportionally, and the number of days devoted to restorative forms of training increases proportionally. So what starts out at around 50-50 balance between work days and restoration days, restoration-based training, of course, is what I mean, uh, typically shifts more to a one to two type of ratio as far as work days to restoration days later in the training cycles. Got it. Where does, um, I know we talked about this last podcast, which was a long time ago, but I was, I remember it cause it was just, it stood out to me cause I, it's something that I've thought about a lot, but, but higher frequency like training weeks where you're doing, you might do like a strength day on, um, Monday and then a plyo day Thursday, Tuesday. And you had mentioned that it gets you like deeper in the motor pool. It gives a unique training effect. Where do those, mm-hmm. uh, where do those days fit in for you across the course of the year? If you're going to use that type of training setup. Most of the time now with the higher level athletes, I, I do back to back speed power days. One of them, the first day is a stimulating day. And the second day is a go deep into the well kind of day. So for example, it's not unusual for me at all with the higher level athletes to do like acceleration development and light Olympics, say on a Monday. And then I'll come back on the next day on the Tuesday and we might hit max velocity or we might go heavy Olympics or we might do depth jumping or something along those lines. Now, when I do those back to back arrangements, typically it's going to require, you know, at least one, typically more like two restoration days on the back end of it. But that's normally what I do. What I have found in my program was once I started kind of venturing into low training densities and I started understanding that I had to give these athletes more time between sessions in order to hit the intensities that I wanted to hit. Well, then I noticed that um, sometimes they were actually still coming into those critical training sessions because of the off time that they had or because they had only been doing restorative training. So that's why I started to do these back-to-back kind of constructs like that. The first day's purpose being strictly to bring back neural stimulation, to to reestablish rate coding capabilities and get the nervous system back activating muscle tissue well, just to produce better training quality on that second day. And then, of course, the third day is kind of a, I guess what you would say, a um, uh, restoration, general strength, med ball type of day. When I was uh, coaching in Division One at another school before I went to LSU, um, I had a lot more flexibility, and I did a lot. I had some good athletes, and what I did with them, I'd do things like acceleration development on a Monday, um, heavy plyos on a Tuesday, uh, speed endurance work on a Wednesday, and then after those three days, back to back to back shucks we just did circuits and played around with the med ball for like six or seven days before we did it again you know so there's different ways to skin that cat you know yeah for sure that um <laughs> yeah i know that that um yeah the acceleration plyos and then um speed endurance triad is pretty demanding <laughs> and uh yeah it definitely makes sense there I, uh, what was I, I feel like, oh yeah, I had an interesting thought, I guess what I used to do back when I was uh, coaching sprints and jumps at Wilmington college, I, I, that was one of the first things that really got me thinking into the stimulatory effects of, of the, the days back to, I mean, I, I played around with that for several years prior with some Russian schemes, but I remember I would, for my, my plan for indoor season was to do a substantial weightlifting day 
like on Friday before our meets on Saturday. And then as the indoor season went on to like make that turn that day into something like a little like higher rep, lighter, faster, like the stimulation kind of circuit each stuff with just the bar. But I found that I think in many cases, those athletes were being more well prepared and well prepped by doing kind of the more traditional. I mean, we, we never went too hard. It was mostly Olympic lifts and stuff the day before, but I found that doing that, the early season version was actually a little bit better than the late season version for a lot of athletes. So maybe I could have flip-flopped it where we started with more of the, you know, almost like what you used to talk about with like the high, the low um, weight, high rep Olympic stuff. And then I, I should have reversed it basically is what I'm saying. I think I, um, but you, you know, you always learn in interesting ways. I don't think all my athletes responded the same, but I, I noticed that a lot of my athletes would jump really well on the Saturday doing like a, pretty traditional olympic day on a friday so yeah it was just it was interesting in 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 doing that yeah i do a lot of the same things but i've just learned as i got older and older that you know to be a good coach you really have to be a chameleon you know it it kind of quits being so much about your program and more about what's the appropriate play at this particular time you know i i really think it's a lot of it's like playing cards you know yeah yeah, you want to play your hand a certain way but what what you see and what the other players at the table do are going to dictate how the, the the shots you take and dictate how you play things out and i think to a large extent that's what good coaches do you know we know there are certain things you have to do but where they go you know you have flexibility um the ratio of work to rest and the work work and the ratio of, of training to restorative training is another variable that you have and I just think you have to be a chameleon and being willing, particularly in season, to, to, to make these changes and make these types of adaptations and uh, uh, to your to your program. And in short, I'm just not as hard headed as I was 40 years ago. Yeah, I think as we grow as coaches, we, we definitely learn more like kind of almost sets of ways to play our cards and, and mm-hmm. ways to get to that end game that we're looking for. Uh, I wanted to ask with uh, strength training, because in the years that's... Uh, elapsed since our last talk i've had some interesting chats on unilateral versus bilateral training and heavy and light and full and partial and all that stuff but how does that if you're moving across the course of a season uh what are some ways that you're you're um i should you know we've talked about olympic lifts but like the barbell squats and step ups and those things how does that uh tend to evolve throughout the course of off season to pre-season to in season in your training well going back to my philosophical approach to uh simplicity um bilateral work never goes away in my program so if i'm looking to train at a high intensity it's going to be bilateral work so if i really want to load somebody it's going to be a simple back squat for the reasons that i said earlier either you can be heavy or fancy you can't be both you know if i want to really load somebody on the olympic platform it's going to be a simple clean from the floor you know it's got to be bilateral work but when we look at the other side of the program, again, the idea of mitigating risk uh, that come, let me rephrase that, the idea of mitigating the risk associated with those training intensities with diversity elsewhere in the program, that's where my unilateral work typically comes into play. So it's not unusual at all for me, maybe on Monday, to have heavy squat day, you know, killer squat day. So we're going like super deep, super heavy full range of motion, you know, the, the, the stuff that makes you, you know, that makes you hate weights. 
but then later in the week, the, you know, all the rest of the sessions, they're going to be unilateral based sessions. Again, the idea of diversity in other parts of the program, mitigating the risk of injury associated with the intensity of those types of squats and such. So I believe in both. I think you have to have both. I believe in um, unilateral work comprising, because it's technically more complex, comprising the lighter side of it. I use the bilateral work whenever I want to make significant uh, loads, whether those loads are speed-based or whether they're uh, weight-based. And I try in everything I do that's slow to go full range of motion. So if I'm squatting, you can be sure it's going to be a deep squat because I feel I've had too many people that I have just observed poor movement quality and uh, bad uh, running mechanics uh, because of imbalances, uh, strength imbalances, core versus peripheral, anterior versus posterior and so forth. And I really believe that full ranges of motion alleviate those types of things where abbreviated ranges of motion uh, actually uh, compound these types of imbalances. Now that's not to say that I don't go a partial range uh, of motion I do, but when I do, it's for a purpose. And to me, there are two reasons why you would go partial range of motion. The first one is specificity. You know, if I'm coaching like a high jumper, you watch a high jumper's uh, plant leg, you see the knee bend to 150 degrees. So it's probably a good idea to do a block of squats where you go to 150 degrees, you know, because of the specific demands of that particular event. But I would not make that my default because to do so to me accentuates and, and, and uh, exacerbates the imbalance situation. Also per output, you know, if I'm doing jump squats or something like that, if I go really deep, well, athletes are gonna tire, power output levels are gonna drop, but if I go shallow, I can maintain power output better. So that's another reason why. So as far as partial versus full, full is my default. And I venture from that either for reasons of specificity or for reasons of maintaining power output within the course of a set or a workout. Got it. So would you say that the the partial work when you do is it is that is that in more of a trump card scenario? Like you're just trying to be really sharp, but if you use it for too long, the athlete could get imbalanced from like a muscle length perspective or something like that? It could. And I find that uh low range shorter ranges of motion, partial ranges of motion seem to be more damaging in your slower forms of work, you know than in your more ballistic forms of work. So I find that doing uh, half squat jumps, you can do them all the time, it never bothers anybody. But doing half squats excessively uh, produces all kinds of problems in the context of a program. They seem to be two different things and you know, tension versus time under tension are different variables. I think it has a lot to do with that as well. Hmm. Yeah. So that being said, um, there's probably some truth to that. Interesting. Yeah, I kind of think about it in the sense of a, a jump, a half squat, a jump half squat is more like maybe there's a muscle like pre the length, the muscle gets to like pre lengthen more like it still gets to use its length because of the stretch shortening cycle maybe versus a half squat just straight up is uh, there's different stuff going on. I could I could see that it makes sense to me. Yeah. And I use those and I supply a lot of variety as well. You know, I'll go deep on squat jumps. I'll go shallow on squat jumps. I'll go deep on lunge jumps. I'll go shallow on split jumps. So I'm always changing up the depths. I'm always changing up the loads and so forth. Like I said, I think that good athletes are well-versed at um, adapting to 
lots of different eccentric situations. You know, change of direction is one type of eccentric situation. A real quick plyometric hit's a different type of eccentric situation. You got to be good at both. You got to be good at long coupling times. You got to be good at short coupling times. And I think if you go shallow and deep in your program, I think if you go unilateral and bilateral in your program, then you kind of cover all those bases a lot better. And now suddenly you got a creature who has good running mechanics, who changes direction well, and they're not a one-trick pony. So you would say that the longest that you'd really go, uh, so the, the full range being the base mode, the longest, <coughs> excuse me, the longest you would go on a partial would be like a half squat or, or a step up or that's more short range or something like that would be really like three, four weeks. Like you wouldn't use it for much more than that. If, if that, that is correct. Interesting. Cool. Well, good stuff today, boo. I, I think that's, that's about all the questions that I had for you that at least had to do with that, that main theme. So I think I'll leave the show there and man, there's so much good information. And I, I feel like I need to go to my Evernote quick and write, write a bunch of stuff down <laughs> too. So that's like another reason I got to, but anyways, thank you so much for your time today. I really learned a lot. Thank you, Joel. You're so well-read and so well-educated and you perform such a valuable service for we coaches. I really enjoy being a part of it and having a chance to contribute. Thanks for being with us for another show. Really appreciate you guys listening. If you enjoy the show, you can help us out by leaving us a rating or review on iTunes, Stitcher, whatever you're listening to. We would totally appreciate that. Also just wanted to give one last shout out to simplyfaster.com. Uh, they have been a longtime sponsor of the show. They have an awesome website, blog, store. Whether you're a coach who works with large teams or you're an individual just looking for some small-scale training gear, their online store has a ton of great options, and you're definitely going to find some things that are going to make your training better. So we definitely encourage you to check that out. And that's, uh, that's it for today. We Again, we appreciate you guys being here. We'll see you guys next week with another great guest.